0: Hello, you're listening to the Cambridge American History Seminar podcast. This is the first episode of Easter term and the 16th overall episode in our series of brief conversations with academics who come to present at our weekly seminar. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Lewis DeFrates. I'm a PhD student here at the University of Cambridge, and I'm absolutely delighted to be joined today by Professor Beverly Gage, who is a Professor of History and American Studies and the Director of the Brady Johnson Programme and Grand Strategy at Yale University. Beverly is a historian of the United States in the 20th century, focusing on political fault, political violence, social movements, and governance, broadly defined. Her first book, uh, The Day Wall Street Exploded, is a rich and insightful account of the 1920 Wall Street bombing and its aftermaths. I read it in my first term as an undergraduate, and I can say all these years later that it's a truly riveting book that sticks in the mind of the reader. She's also published a number of journal articles, including Terrorism and the American Experience for the Journal of American History, and has more recently written extensively for the New York Times, The Nation, and The Washington Post, among other outlets. Her forthcoming book, a biography of FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, is set to be published imminently on Viking Press. Beverly, thanks very much for joining me.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So we're going to talk a little bit about the paper you'll be giving to the seminar today, a little bit about your wider research, and some of your broader experiences as a historian. So the paper you're giving today is titled G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover in the American Century. Could you tell me and the listeners a little bit more about it?
1: Sure. The title is also the title of the book that I'm writing, which, as you said, is a biography of J. Edgar Hoover, who was the director of the FBI from 1924 to 1972. So he was director of the FBI for 48 years Mm -hmm. under eight different presidents. Um, And so the biography really is uh, both a study of Hoover and then is also um, really a story of the 20th century. Um, Hoover was actually born in Washington, D.C. in the late 19th century. He died there in 1972. And over the course of his lifetime, of course, Washington and the United States Uh, were both really transformed and he was in the thick of all of that. Um, So the paper I'm talking about today is gonna give a little bit of an overview of that and it's particularly gonna talk about the two themes that interest me uh, with Hoover. He's an interesting character in his own right, there are lots of big cases and dramatic stories, um, but as a political historian, uh, for me the real puzzle of J. Edgar Hoover is that he was on the one hand, uh, a real architect of the American state um, and really came to power with a set of ideas about professional administration, how the administrative state ought to run. And he really comes of age in the sort of progressive era New Deal ethos of of good governance and expansion of federal power. But he was also an ideological conservative, and he's one of the most significant conservative political figures of the 20th century. And these are categories that we don't usually put together, right? Sure. You don't usually have someone who is both a state builder and a conservative. Mm-hmm. We usually think of conservatives in the states anyways, as sort of anti-statist and anti-federal. So that's sort of the puzzle of the book is yeah. putting those putting those pieces together.
0: And that's, that's something that really interests me, like that kind of contradiction. And do you think that I guess, in in your opinion, is he an anomaly in that regard or does his kind of uh, dual position in that sense, does that speak to something broader in American history?
1: I think he is an anomaly in the sense that he was there for so long Mm -hmm. (laughs) and he built an institution really in his own likeness, had a level of kind of insulated power that's pretty unusual, both his longevity in office and then the amount of power that he accrued. But I think that it is... Uh, Representative of something larger in the historiography that I would like to see happening, which is um, an incorporation of uh, the security state into how we talk about the state, right? When we talk about the state, we're often talking about the welfare state um, and really thinking about these other branches, the intelligence agencies, bringing them into that story. And then also uh, sort of thinking about. Uh, what actually conservatives, the conservative movement more broadly, what their vision of state power actually Mm -hmm. was, because there are a lot of conservatives who are not just anti statist but who are articulating particular visions of of how the state ought to be used. Sure.
0: And do you think that that kind of anti-state vision um, and, you know, The things that J. Edgar Hoover did, the increasing surveillance powers, for instance, do you think that's something that can be reconciled ideologically or is it just kind of an unsolved problem that just functions politically?
1: Yeah, well, I think that there's some of each. So I Mm -hmm. think that he did have a very particular vision of uh, both the expansiveness and then the limits of state power. But often these two impulses, which were both very deeply held for him, were really in conflict Um, And so I think what's interesting about him is that he was able to um, kind of take some of the tools of liberal or progressive state building, and then in the end, really use them to contain uh, liberal progressive leftist movements in in a very aggressive way. So for him, those pieces often fit together. Mm -hmm. Um, I think from our perspective, they seem a little more anomalous.
0: And could you talk just briefly, uh, for people who don't know, the kind of the tactics and the strategies that he did employ for that kind of repression that you're talking about.
1: Yeah, so Hoover was probably most famous as the great enemy of the American left, mm-hmm. uh, really starting in uh, in his very early years, um, in the teens and 20s, when he's uh, in, just in his 20s himself and he became becomes the head of the, uh, the radical division, this new sort of federal surveillance wing of the Justice Department. Um, but for a lot of his early career after that, um, he's less involved in kind of political crusades and they really pick up again in the the 1940s. And at that point, his chief target is really the Communist Party. uh, And he engages in enormously widespread uh, surveillance, counterintelligence operations uh, against the Communist Party in particular. Um, I think what's also interesting about Hoover was that he was a very good publicist. Mm -hmm. And so uh, his crusade against the Communist Party was not just uh, a matter of surveillance and kind of moving through the courts and gathering intelligence. But he was this enormous public figure um, who brought in, you know, uh, the idea that communism was this deep assault on the American way of life, an assault on law and order, an assault on uh, American Christian values, an assault on American racial hierarchies. So he actually had this pretty, pretty big vision. Um, and then by the 1960s, uh, really late 50s into the 60s, and then for the rest of his life, uh, he was was uh, pretty aggressive about going after the New Left, going after the anti-war movement, um, the civil rights movement. Figures like Martin Luther King uh, became real focus of FBI attention. Yeah,
0: that's fascinating. Um, and one of the... There seems to be a kind of tension there as well, because as the FBI develops, it seems to to me at least, as a complete novice, but it also tries to occupy this place, uh, space as like a non-partisan political agency. And so how did they manage to do that? Is it just that they placed their opponents supposedly outside the realms of partisan politics, or is there something else going on?
1: Yeah, I think that that's exactly right, um, that uh, the FBI always had these two identities. And I think actually in many ways still has these two identities. One is this highly professionalized kind of fact-based um, Uh, administrative operation that's intended to stand outside of politics, uh, be fully a part of of the kind of non-electoral wing of the state. And then on the other hand, has this deep ideological investment. And I think there are a couple of factors to think about. So one is that, you know, Hoover's ideas, they were pretty popular and pretty Mm -hmm. widely shared. So Uh, in terms of um, marginalizing subversive groups. Some of that he was doing in secret, right? Uh, But a lot of it was very open. It was very widely shared. He was very well invested in Washington networks. He had a huge popular following and a huge popular constituency. So there are a lot of people that are really supporting his effort to use the state um, in this way. Um, And I think the other divide that's important is that the FBI is just sort of a strange hybrid organization in the sense that it's a law enforcement agency and so a lot of that kind of professional identity as crime fighters uh, as investigators comes out of its law enforcement end and then it's also an intelligence agency a domestic intelligence agency uh, and a lot of the ideological piece is kind of more more in that area.
0: Right okay and going back to that point you said about public opinion and um, it struck me because the next question I've written down is like what's it like How's it been writing a biography of someone who seems to be kind of an unsympathetic character, but I think I'm probably thinking about how public opinion has shifted in the last couple of decades. Could you maybe talk a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, that's um, one of the things that has been really interesting and was actually compelling to me about doing this project is the fact that Hoover, to us... Is an almost one dimensional villain, right? Mm -hmm. There's almost no other figure. I mean, even Richard Nixon has gone through this sort of process of rehabilitation. There's no other figure in the political life of the 20th century. Um, who is as routinely villainized as Hoover. Um, And so it's very hard for us to recapture the fact that for most of his career, really well into the mid-1960s, he was one of the most popular and most revered and well-respected figures in American politics. Now, the left always hated Hoover, Mm -hmm. more or less. Uh, But uh, for most of the country, he was this this kind of great political figure. So part of the project of the book, without redeeming J. Edgar Hoover exactly, is to recover cover a little bit of that and remind people that he didn't just last that long or hold that much power by doing things secretly or subversively, that he wasn't just this rogue character, that there were millions and millions of people at the grassroots um, in Washington itself who believed what he believed, who supported what he was doing and thought that they were engaged in the same crusade that he was.
0: Right, yeah. So touching on that and the... um especially, I guess, the, the, the standing opposition from the left. Like, How do you see this work in the context and in connection with some of your previous work, say, on terrorism or on social movements in the earlier 20th century?
1: Well, what really sparked my interest in this book was in part that uh, in the last book that I wrote about uh, bombing on Wall Street in 1920... Uh, which was attributed to, and rightly, I think, um, to anarchists, to left-wing political radicals. Um, Hoover was there as a very young man, both helping to investigate that bombing and then also participating in the Red Scare of 1919 and 1920. And so what was striking to me was how continuous his ideas really were, mm-hmm. that the things that he's saying as a 24-year-old are roughly the same things he's saying in his mid-70s, half a century later when he's at the FBI. So I think his story kind of gives us a different sense of some of the continuities over the course of the 20th century. We often like to make these hard and fast splits in the 30s or the 40s, Mm -hmm. um, but Hoover tells us a pretty different story.
0: And that seems to be one of the benefits. I mean, it seems to be especially true of Jacob Hoover, but writing biography generally of people with these long lives is it does kind of force you to confront those like periodical hard and fast rules. Yeah. Great. So I guess we'll just move on to a couple more general questions to close out. Um, are there any uh, books or articles that you've read in the last 12 months or any time recently that's challenged you, excited you, made you change the way you think about a particular topic in history or your own work?
1: Um, Yeah, I would say uh, there's a book called um, The Polarizers that came out. It's actually a political science book. Um, It's not necessarily directly relevant to my own work, but uh, to the degree that one of the big crises in the U.S. right now is over um, hyper-partisanship and polarization in politics, what's really interesting and compelling to me about that book Uh, is that it shows a moment in sort of the 50s and 60s in particular, when many people thought that Uh, polarizing the parties, creating two distinctive parties with distinct ideologies was going to be a great idea, Mm -hmm. uh, was going to solve a lot of the uh, problems of the political system in the mid-century, kind of uh, consensus politics, a sense of a closed system, an undemocratic system. And I think uh, as people sort of flail about in crisis at the moment... Forget that this was in part an intentional project, which then suggests that you know one could have another intentional project mm-hmm. now uh, if one so chose. So to me, it's a it's a great example of uh, what I think history can be really useful for, which is reminding us that things as they are now um, were not always this way, and that um, they were often made by the decisions of people, and people today could choose to do otherwise.
0: Brilliant. Yeah, sounds great. So. Um, What's the most interesting place or archive that you've visited for research? And I'd be interested to know about your research process for this project in particular.
1: Yeah, well, a lot of the research for this um, is not sitting in archives. Mm -hmm. It has to be acquired through the Freedom of Information Act, which is a a kind of strange... you never know what you're going to get with the Freedom of Information Act. Um, I would say probably the most interesting uh, adventure that I had was um, was going to Hoover's house um, and... Uh, just knocking on the door there and yeah. the owners were able to uh, open it up and let me in and took me on a tour of his home very kindly yeah. not really knowing who I was yeah. um, and that gave me a real sort of it hadn't changed a whole lot it's been renovated a little bit uh, yeah. but so that uh, was both an act of generosity and then gave me a uh, a real sense of the kind of human experience um, yeah. of his life
0: and that seems crucial even as you're talking about these broader political changes that is kind of yeah at the heart of it, right? His his life, yeah. So closing out, as we ask all uh, presenters and interviewees here at the Cambridge American History Seminar Podcast, what's your favorite album?
1: Well, that's a good question, um, <laughs> and I don't know that I would classify this as my favorite album. Um, but I, in my, I teach a lecture class at Yale on uh, the United States in the twentieth century, and I always try to start class with. uh, with a song, a song that somehow related to what we're doing in class. And I've been going back to um, a series of presidential campaign songs uh, that were all uh, recorded by one guy and his guitar mm-hmm. and he dug back in and started with George Washington and got up to the present and uh, unbelievably my son and I have listened to these on road trips yeah. and learned to sing songs like Get on a Raft with Taft yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and many other strange and uh, wonderful discoveries from the past.
0: Really. So what's the name of the singer? Do you remember?
1: Uh, his name is, I believe it's Harry Brand uh and the first name might be wrong but uh Mm -hmm. his last name is definitely brand great oh no it's oscar brand oscar Oscar brand Brand. yes
0: i'm sure he can expect a spike in his listenership in the next (laughs) week or so great well beverly gage thanks very much for talking to us today we're really looking forward to the seminar later and of course to reading the book when it comes out
1: okay thanks lewis
0: great thanks very much